thank you all for coming on what is a typically miserable London winter's night. Uh, but I uh, promise you a treat in store. I'm uh, Toby Dodge, and if you can turn all your mobile phones off, you won't have me grumpily looking at you when they ring, and I better check that mine's off as well. But more importantly, tonight we're very lucky to have uh, Yazid Sayah with us, Professor Yazid Sayah, who um, I was very keen to come and speak to an LSE audience on Syria for three reasons. Firstly, uh, a lot of us in Middle East studies went into mourning when he took the very sensible de- uh, decision to leave the, uh, the cold and rather arid climes of London to relocate to Beirut, not just for the weather, I suspect, but also to give himself more space to think about the big issues that we all need to think about. So it was great to bring him back. I think secondly, as you all probably know, he's a scholar of uh, a great repute. I think his book on the PLO, the armed struggle and the search for a state, the Palestinian national movement, is uh, required reading for anyone who uh, wants to understand the plight of the Palestinian people since 1948. But I think more importantly, um, I was lucky to bump into Yazid a couple of years ago in the Gulf when we had lunch. And over that lunch, I learned more about Syria in an hour than I had uh, in the previous couple of years, scratching my head and trying to think about it myself. So on that basis, at least, knowledge imparted over uh, lunch, I wanted to bring him here today. He will speak on Syria's age of revolution, peaceful protest to armed struggle for about 40 to 45 minutes uh, and possibly a bit longer, but, and then we'll throw it open to discussion for the rest of the time. We have until 8 o'clock, so without uh, further ado, Yazid. Well, thanks, Toby, very much for that generous introduction. It's great to be back at the LSE, um, and certainly uh, this, this new, newly acquired expertise on Syria, I mean, I should maybe... In, 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 uh, in order to reveal everything very fully, my first ever piece of writing and analysis on Syria came out at the end of January 2012, so just about two years ago. And uh, I was pretty proud of it. Um, and I saw myself quoted within a week as a veteran Syria watcher. So this tells you a little bit, I think, about the understanding of most of us uh, on Syria. I've met, I'm one of the Otherwise, wonderful things of this enormous tragedy that's been going on in Syria is the immense creativity. It's not only generated, but it's also revealed to us uh, in art, in literature, in political analysis, in sociology, in pretty much every single possible field you can think of, including, of course, in terms of political activism, determination, and commitment to values. Um, But... I I think also something that Toby said in the introduction was uh, helpful in terms of um, justifying my uh, claim to any expertise on Syria is that I found when it came to Syria, unlike attempting to understand and analyze, let's say, Iraq or Egypt, where I had worked a lot on the military, on the armed forces, that I had an instinctive feel for Syria partly because Syria's story and Syria's politics were so deeply implicated in everything to do with Palestine, and therefore anyone working on Palestine or in Palestine or writing about Palestine had to know about Syria. And also, since I also grew up in Lebanon and undertook a lot of my intellectual development, my political development in Lebanon, therefore necessarily Syria was deeply implicated for good or for bad. Um, Lebanese and Palestinians weren't always quite as deeply implicated in Syria, but nonetheless, um, the nature of Syrian society, its dynamics, its politics, 
were somehow far closer to me and far more familiar and easier to understand, I think, uh, than, than those, let's say, of Egypt. Um, of course, uh, a starting point, and I'm sure Toby will uh, agree with here on this, that a starting point for me, the first thing I read on Syria when I wanted to learn a lot more was Hanna Batatu's work, and in particular the period going up to around the beginning of the 1970s, in order to understand the immense diversity and complexity of this society, which is so unique. And I think also explains why, as I'll lay out today, in a very sort of rudimentary way, um, the nature of what's going on in Syria, the Syrian revolution, is so particularly complex. Now, I'll, I'll, um, I'm not sure I'm go- how closely I'm going to stick to the, the title and the blurb you got. Um, this is very much in the way of uh, a set of reflections, somewhat loosely organized together, um, around the notion of revolution. Uh, I want to use that idea, that notion, as a framework in order to do a number of things. Um, and I hope very much that you'll engage with what I have to say. I'm not presenting anything as a set established truth or, or a definitive conclusion on my part. Until yesterday, I was still going to argue that what's going on in Syria is not yet a revolution, in fact, at all, but many rebellions. And by the time I finished writing up my notes, I, was, I, I end up arguing the opposite. And you'll hopefully see why. And I think maybe that ambivalence is part of the story, too. So I, I need help in thinking through all this. Um, I'm certainly not doing current affairs analysis. This is an attempt to understand this phenomenon and ultimately um, first to, to, to work out a way, and this is why I use the notion of a revolution, to grasp and articulate the very many and very diverse conflicts and processes that are underway in Syria and that have been underway for the past three years, just about. Secondly, to try and understand the nature and the strengths and weaknesses of the protagonists, both the regime and its various foes. And thirdly, to try and anticipate likely future trajectories and outcomes, at least in a very broad sense, or at least to give indicators of what we should be looking for. Now, I want to preface my talk by saying, why revolution? A word about labels or terms, if you like. Um, It may seem self-evident for many people, and certainly for many of the activists in places like Midan al-Tahrir or Burqiba Street in Tunisia and Tunis or in various cities and villages of Syria, that what they're engaged in is or was a revolution. Um, I don't think they're wrong necessarily, but I think it's still worth investigating what makes it a revolution and are they in fact correct in each case. The diversity of political forces, of ideological agendas that the uprisings have thrown up, certainly throughout the Arab Spring countries, including Salafism, which I think bears particular attention, although I'm not going to devote all that much to it here, um, also fit into this conceptual framework provided by revolution. So I I, I think it's uh, useful in that way. Of course, these labels, uprising, revolution, rebellion, insurrection, are very loaded, and they're used by different people as part of discursive contests, as part of political competitions. Um, I want to try and avoid, when I use the labels, I I, I hope you'll indulge me a little bit and not assume I'm I'm attaching good or bad value to anything. I'm not fixing a definition. I'm not saying this is objectively the following in Syria or the opposition or the Syrian National Coalition or the Salafist groups or Al-Qaeda or whoever. But rather, I'm trying to use these terms 
to highlight particular aspects and dynamics of the ongoing process of change and of conflict in Syria in order to understand better the dynamics and and directions, as I said earlier. So what's in a name? What's in the name revolution? Um, Besides the activists who are very proud and jealous about calling what they're engaged in revolution, and certainly if you look at what Syrian activists say from secular or leftist all the way through to the most Islamist or Salafists, they all insist on the term thawra, revolution. What it means to each of them, I'm sure, is very different. Um, But the term, of course, lends itself to other uses. In Egypt, the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces that took power in February 2011 claimed that it was safeguarding, preserving, and promoting the revolution. Um, All the transitional governments it oversaw also claimed to speak for the revolution, even though many of them involved leftover personalities from the Mubarak era. And, of course, since the overthrow of Mohamed Morsi, both the armed forces and the police, still killing people, still speak in the name of the revolution. There's a legacy here, of course, in Egypt, as in Syria or Iraq or Algeria or Sudan or Libya or North Yemen, for that matter, in South Yemen. Um, The legacy of the 1950s and 1960s, the series of military coup d'etat that destroyed the old order that the colonial powers had put in place with the sort of at, the, the attrapments of state of modern bourgeois democracy in parliaments, etc. Um, and these revolutions from above, as Alan K. Trimberger called them, um, were what we understand or understood until recently as revolution. This is the claim they made about themselves. And I think up to a certain point, despite their putschist form there, their sort of military interventionist form, these were revolutions in a certain manner of speaking, uh, if you go back to Perry Anderson's approach, because they brought about dramatic disjunctures in which emerging or rising classes, social forces, wrested political power away from the dominant classes, from the old order, and subsequently use state power in order both to promote and defend their interests. In that sense, at least, certainly what emerged after 1952 in Egypt or 58 in Iraq and the 60s in Syria and elsewhere was a revolution of sorts. I'll come back to that particular point later on, but what I want to do now is jump forward to the Arab Spring and say, so in that sense, in that definition, was what happened in Egypt in 2011 a revolution? or in Tunisia, Yemen, even in Libya, where the structure was broken, were these revolutions? Uh, Theodore Scotchpole, who's another very useful theorist of revolution, although there are various, there's various uh, objections one could make to her approach, um, that political revolutions transform the state but leave existing social structures intact. Whereas what's unique about social revolutions, unlike political revolutions in her definition, is that basic changes in social structures and political structures occur in mutually reinforcing fashion. In that sense, I'm not convinced that what happened in Egypt was a revolution. And what happened last July, rather than being a counter-revolution, which arguably it was, may be seen simply as a reassertion, authoritarian reassertion, a counterattack, if you like. In any case, it's, it's difficult to see that by using those definitions as a revolution. 
But certainly what Syria has experienced since March 2011, I think, can be seen as a, a revolution. It seems to conform far more extensively and definitively to the notion of revolution. In fact, the very, the very fact that Syria displays elements, very powerful elements of rebellion, and I'll clarify in a little bit what I, how I distinguish that from revolution, rebellion and of counter-revolution, if anything, confirms even further that what is underway in Syria is a revolution. Because revolutions aren't nice, neat, unilinear things. They're messy. They're multifaceted. They rarely, if ever, are started by organized actors that have a conscious, clear aim and an agenda and an ideology, and they say, right, we're going to start the revolution. I mean, Che Guevara tried that in Bolivia. It didn't work out. But this is not generally how revolutions have started in history, and certainly not in recent history, not in Iran, not in Syria, not elsewhere, certainly not in the Arab Spring, if that is a revolution. So the, 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 um, the fact that these many participants in what's happening in Syria came from different starting points with different grievances or expectations, and that over time they've developed their agendas, divergent agendas, and become more coherent in what their divergent agendas are from the very pro-democracy, pro-free market, pro-liberal, whatever, statements of the Syrian National Council, later coalition, of the Muslim Brotherhood, versus the most recent or explicit articulation of a political program for Syria, that of the Islamic Front, published on the 22nd of last November which speaks very specifically about an Islamic state and goes into, in some brevity maybe, but goes into their understanding of Syria's social agenda, economic agenda, and explicitly say that democracy, secularism, and the civic state, the Dawla al-Madaniya, are not good and are not for Syria. That is an agenda, and it's become coherent over a period of time. So the very fact that all this is brought together and has been brought out and generated by what's going on in Syria, I think, is if, in, in a sense in itself, some sort of uh, demonstration or, or confirmation that what's going on is a revolution. Now, I, I want to draw on a few historical experiences, not in a structured way or a structured comparison, um, but to, to get a bit of analytical distance from what's going on in Syria, because it is very provocative of, of deep passion, of intensive feeling, very rightly so, um, and because the labels are so loaded, I think that by noticing parallels, similarities and differences with other historical experiences going as far back as the French Revolution or even the American Revolution um, helps us gain a little bit of analytical traction. And, and here I want to say something about the genesis of this talk, where this idea came from. Um, now, as I, as I said earlier, I've started to follow Syria closely for the past two years. I've focused in particular on the Syrian opposition because just as I was most interested in the Palestinian case, in the nature of the Palestinian movement, its organizational <coughs> dynamics, its politics, and how that wrapped around the central notion of armed struggle and how political contests, contests were waged through that and discourse was sort of conducted in those terms, um, this prompted me also to be most interested in the broad social dynamics of Syria and its revolution, but also in the Syrian opposition or the various oppositional structures to understand why they behaved in the way they did, why they performed or failed in various ways, 
And I was immediately struck by a number of contrasts with the Palestinian experience with which I'm most familiar. And here I'm just going to skip through a few ideas. This is not a sort of a complete analytical map, but um, a set of observations that got me thinking and hopefully will help us get deeper into what's going on in Syria. First, um, what, did, what did the term revolution mean in Syria? What made this a revolution? And I thought back to the beginnings of, well, some of the beginnings of Palestinian activism in the late 1950s with the National Liberation Movement, Fatah, that was later led or most identified with the Yasser Arafat and that dominated the PLO for about 40 years or so, um, where Fatah used the notion of revolution devoid of a particular social content, social in the sense of socioeconomic, of class. Uh, the social is always there. But for them, revolution was a rebellion against what they called a bitter reality or a corrupt reality. This was something of an existential revolt. revolt. And it's not so surprising for those who, who worked on this that Fatah found inspiration in Franz Fanon and in Algeria, which was waging its own anti-colonial struggle around the same time. And so the national struggle, the anti-colonial dimension, the sort of liberation of the individual by collective action and through violence was very important. And that, in a sense, is both, of course, a part of every revolution, I think. Every revolutionary holds this in him or herself. Um, but it is striking that for the early Palestinian activists, it was Algeria that, in my view, was the real model, the real inspiration not Vietnam or China, although those were very much current at the time and very much cited throughout Palestinian, Palestinian literature. But what was cited was notions of guerrillas' war, people's war, the sort of more organizational military aspects. But what the Vietnamese and Chinese did in the form of mass mobilization, organizing their societies, trade unions, labor unions, activism, civil activism, etc., for years before they waged armed struggle, wasn't, you know, you don't find mentioned in Fatah literature. And, and I think that's telling. And, and that, again, is where, um, you know, some of the dynamics are different in Syria. Of course, this is not to say that social dynamics weren't hugely important in the Palestinian struggle. They were. For instance, um, in my reading at least, the manner in which the PLO recruited or the different Palestinian guerrilla groups recruited in the late 60s in a place like Jordan, where there's a very large Palestinian population and a large refugee population, had a lot to do with the resentment of refugees against non-refugees both fellow Palestinians, middle-class Palestinians, or the system as a whole. And that was reflected in the sort of behavior by unruly militiamen in the streets of Amman or Erbid and elsewhere. That's a social dynamic. Who joined which Palestinian faction? Who bore arms, etc.? Well, generally, poorer people, lower-income people, more marginal classes tend to bear the brunt of most wars and revolutions. That's not, nothing new. But what's particularly interesting, if you look a bit more carefully, is, for instance, that in a Palestinian refugee camp such as Burj al-Barajni in the Beirut area in the 60s or 70s, um, people, refugees from little villages around the market town of Tarshiha in the Galilee, which used to be a dominant social economic place because it was a market town, um, it was the villages around that joined different Palestinian factions to, in a way, 
achieve social mobility and flip the, the balance of the relationship around between them and the people of Tarshiha. You see the same in the streets of Gaza where the clan, an inferior clan such as the Dughmush or Bahr, poor, marginal, looked down on by everyone, including fellow refugees, um, by joining the Palestinian security force of, say, Muhammad Dahlan, could achieve a new kind of dominance over rival clans, which, of course, then got flipped away the, the, the other way around once Hamas took over and kicked Dahlan out. Social dynamics are always there, and this is what I think we should really be looking at much more carefully in the case of Syria, because the sort of discourse we get, the sort of reporting we get, on which a lot of policy is built, is about good and bad and, you know, evil Russia-China, ter- you know, tyrannical regime versus democratic opposition, moderates versus radical Islamists, which isn't all wrong, but it really doesn't tell us what's going on in Syria, and certainly not enough to understand where things are going, why they've gone where they are, and why we keep seem- seeming to be surprised by where things have gone. Um, another aspect of contrast that I found interesting, and I'm going to start developing some of these social dynamics uh, shortly, Another thing I found interesting, a second observation, was the, to my mind, maybe this is sort of a bit of prejudice here, the astonishing lack of readiness readiness of the established opposition figures, highly admirable people who formed the Syrian National Coalition or the National Coordination Body or later the Syrian National uh, Council and then the coalition, people who went in and out of prison at a time when no one in the world was taking up their cause, and sat in the jails and the prisons of Syria. These, these are people I respect enormously, but once they became the recognized leadership of the Syrian people, of the opposition, they failed. And I'll give you one little instance of what I mean by failure. I don't just mean the very obvious way that I think we all see today, sadly, but I was, I was visiting Antakya, Hatay province in Turkey, on the Syrian border um, about a year and a half ago, And what immediately struck me was the complete absence of this organized, recognized opposition in the border area from Gaziantep through Rouhani to Antakya and elsewhere. Although this was an area both of open borders to Syria, of refugee flows, lots of activists sitting there looking for leadership. This was by then a year after the first refugee flow. By then there were liberated areas. By then half of Aleppo had fallen to the opposition or the revolution. To my mind, it was insane that there was no one there organizing, let's say, delivery of fuel every night. I mean, if I were in their shores and I had a few pennies or could find some donors, I would, I would buy, rent, whatever, a fleet of tankers, 10, 20 oil tankers, fill them up with cheap diesel on the Turkish side of the border, get them across the border, you know, 40 kilometers. They could do it five times a night and deliver fuel for emergency operating rooms, medical centers, for heating, for communications, for anything you can think of. What does it take? But these people were in Istanbul and just didn't do it. And until today, they haven't done it. And, and, and I was thinking, but, you know, the PLO, when the Israeli army invaded in 1982 and they were held off at Khaldi, for those of you who know Beirut, know Beirut um, just, just beyond the airport. They were held for five days, and during those five days, the PLO mapped the entire part of West Beirut, neighborhood by neighborhood, identified food supplies, flour supplies, worked out where bakeries were needed, if there was enough water, 
dug water wells, provided diesel, because you need that to run the water wells and to run the bakeries, set up field clinics in every neighborhood for civil, you know, civil society, not just for their fighters, and so on. It took five days, and by the time the Israelis were ready to move into Beirut, they couldn't anymore. And Beirut was ready to withstand a two-month siege. Now, the PLO by then had had 15 or 16 years of experience, had fought in many civil wars. There's a huge difference for an opposition that had come from nowhere, that facing a regime that had eliminated not just political parties that stood in opposition, but civil society organizations, anyone who exercised autonomy, trade unions, labor unions, there was no one except those who were loyal and subservient to the regime. Without that base, without that experience, it was almost impossible for anyone to construct a rival political organization to face this regime. So that's understandable, although after one or two or three years, it's not quite as understandable, because after all, a great many Syrians who flocked to support the opposition, the revolution, inside Syria and outside, immensely qualified in all walks of life, Many of the people who run the local administrative councils have administrative experience, and they're tremendously motivated. So there are huge failings here that we have to think about, I think. But, but that sort of sidesteps the issue of revolution, because that, in a way, is the opposition, and that's not quite the same thing. And even in the Palestinian experience, one of the interesting moments in the late 60s, beginning of the 70s, was this tension between two things, two ways of imagining what was going on, there was the resistance movement, al-Muqawama, which was seen as authentic, grassroots, embodying the true commitment to the cause, to the end, through fighting, through commitment to the liberation of the total land of historic Palestine, etc., versus the formal institution embodied by the PLO, which the guerrillas had also taken over. And this tension was only resolved with defeat in the civil war in Jordan, after which one of these two imaginations won out and dominated, and from there on took the PLO gradually towards compromise, negotiation, division of the territory with Israel over a long and pretty bloody period of time. But the two, two little examples I'd like to mention here, even though it's taking some time away from the next part of the, the talk, is... There are two little instances in Syria which I think offer ex counterexamples. One is the Palestinians in Syria, who, because of their special status, were allowed at least until 1982 to be politically active in ways that were denied to most Syrians. Many of the Syrians I know who gained political experience in that time joined Palestinian movements, whether it was Burhan Ghaliun, Sadiq Jalal al-Azim, and quite a few others. But Palestinians in Syria weren't allowed to join Fatah or the PFLP or DFLP. They went to Lebanon. They had training and political training. They gained skills. And many of the ones I met were extraordinarily mature and, and developed cadres. I don't know where they are today. Some of them I know are in there under siege in and around Damascus. Um, others may have been imprisoned or killed over the years. But that's one instance. Another, of course, is the Kurds. The one exception in this Syrian scene are the Kurds, regardless of whether it's the PYD, the KNC, the KDP slash S. But the predominant trend in most Kurdish areas has been for these past three years to 
somehow steered the Kurdish areas away from over-militarization or the, the, the intense brutalization and violence of other parts of Syria. They've been, in some cases, the PYD has been accused of being an agent of the regime, and this is why you can, we can get into that. But I'm simply interested in why them? Why were they different? And, of course, the obvious answer is that the Kurds have political organizations that have been around for a good long time, whether the sister organization of Barazani's KDP in Iraq, which gained a lot of experience because of that, whether the PYD, which is allowed from after 1998 when Ojalan was effectively handed over to the Turks by the Syrians, um, after 1998, they allowed the PKK to organize inside Syria, and out of that has come the PYD. So there are legacies there that have been critical for the ability of the Kurds to think through issues, to decide on a strategy, and to decide whether to get involved in an armed struggle or not. Whereas the Syrian National Council jumped on board of an armed struggle that it neither started, nor controlled, nor supplied, nor provided leadership for, because it was following the street, in a sense. Who was the street? And here I want to highlight that the issue of violence, of the armed struggle, it's difficult to imagine of a revolution without violence. Uh, maybe people's power in the Philippines in 1986, Iran in 1979, which despite, I think, popular image in the West, certainly in the U.S., as being somehow bloodstained, the actual revolution, 78 to 79, involved minimal violence by the revolutionaries, a minimal number of killed it wasn't an armed struggle. It was very much a people's power. The first one, in fact, way before the Philippines. The bloodshed came after, of course, during the revolutionary consolidation and the struggles for power between the different factions after 1979. Um, but the, the, so, the, so the importance of violence and of the centrality of armed struggle is, is, is important. It's very much a typical feature of revolution. And it's a powerful and central theme but with regard to Syria and moving beyond debates about the wisdom of violence, the resort to arms, the legitimacy of the resort to arms, the emphasis that this was only ever in self-defense and to protect the protesters, which was true for the most part, but not always. Um, in parts, there were very deliberate uses of, of arms in, in areas like Duma, for instance. Um, but, but that's not the, the, the overall picture. What's most remarkable about the, the violence in Syria, I think, at least revolutionary violence, if you like, is what, that, that it brings out the social dimension of this conflict by looking at who wields violence, how it's wielded, what for, with what discourse. That, I think, tells us more about the nature of the Syrian revolution. Um, not to say it's bloody or not. I mean, people in Britain in 1789, of course, and kings of Europe all were, were eager to, to paint the French Revolution as, as bloody. Although what happened against the Commune in 1871 was far, far bloodier, to take one simple example, or after 1848. Um, so violence in itself, I want to remove the sort of value aspect of this, and just to say that what's important about it is it reveals the social dynamics. And here... The, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll point out, incidentally, that quite a few Syrian activists, intellectuals, writers, people like Badr Khan Ali, who is a Syrian Kurd, uh, Samir Suleiman, and, and many, many others, uh, Yasser, Yasin Haj Saleh, who is, is, I mean, the one I admire, I think, the most of all, um, have all emphasized this, the important function of, of violence 
and, and are dismissive of leftist intellectuals who wanted the revolution not only to be peaceful but to stay peaceful and how, who somehow saw the resort to violence as an aberration. And I think they're right in this, criti- in this criticism. But what's, what's important is, the, 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 as I say, the, the social dynamic, and this is what I want to move into now, the, the, a social reading of the, social, of the Syrian revolution. First, uh, a point made certainly in, in, in people debating the nature of revolution, trying to define it in any of the sociological readings you look at, that there was nothing inevitable about its timing. The idea of historical necessity, likely, maybe. But had there not been an Arab Spring, had Ben Ali not been thrown out so dramatically in, Tunis, in Tunisia, had Mubarak not fallen so dramatically and swiftly in Egypt, had the revolution not started against Gaddafi in Libya and people's power in, in the streets of Sana'a and elsewhere in Yemen, the Syrian revolution, the uprising, probably wouldn't have started just at that time in that way, and certainly not without a particular slogan. The, you know, the young kids in Dara saying, you know, um, so the, the impact of the timing, the era, I think is extremely important, just as it was for Palestinians or Syrians on the far left or the breakaway faction of the Iraqi Communist Party in 1968. They were all influenced by their time, by Algeria, by Cuba, by the Chinese Cultural Revolution. So too has the Syrian Revolution, of course, been impacted by its time. Part of that iconography is the Arab Spring and Midan al-Tahrir and social media. Part of it is also al-Qaeda and guns and, and, and blood again. That is part of the iconography. And, and I think we need to question, I mean, it's, it's, it's you know, is a, a Chechen fighter who comes to Syria, you know, a grotesque person who loves bloodshed and loves cutting off people's heads? Or is he another Guevara? who believes in the sort of, you know, revolutionary, sort of, um, in revolutionary violence, the drama of it, creating facts. I'd hate to think that, but I, I have to say, let's start thinking about these things. So, here, I want to throw out a, a series of ideas about the social, the social reading of, of the Syrian revolution. First, we've got what I'm maybe grossly simplifying as urban, middle class, lower middle class activism, which reflected itself in the tendency to peaceful protest, a lot of creative civilian resistance, um, you know, the local coordination committees and many others, the Syrian Revo- uh, General Commission for this, uh, the General Commission for the Syrian Revolution, and others. Um, young people, in particular, so there's a generational aspect, the gender dimension of, of both genders involved deeply in everything. Um, very familiar in a way and more like the other Arab Spring uprisings, at least certainly the ones in Egypt and Tunisia, but also the more easily quelled. Um, And, of course, as we saw in Iran in June 2009 with the Green Revolution, had the Syrian uprising remained limited to that kind of protest, then very likely the Syrian protest would have gone the same way as the Iran protest did in June 2009. Not necessarily, but likely. Where I want to spend more time is looking at the people who've been carrying the guns, the rural rebellion, or the rebellion of the rural and urban poor, who are themselves massively of rural migrant background. 
Duma, which I mentioned earlier, is a wonderful case, wonderful example of, it, of, a, of an area, a suburb of Damascus, or a part of the eastern Ghouta, which a decade ago had 100,000 people and on the eve of the uprising had 400,000. Mostly migrants from eastern Syria as a result of drought and over-extraction of water from aquifers as a result of many bad practices and predatory behavior of people affiliated to the government, to security agencies, to the Ba'ath Party, to local governors, all the people who could give themselves licenses to extract more water, to produce more food for export, which was a cash crop, uh, drove more and more and more people off the land and into the big cities, along with Iraqi refugees and a smattering of others. This is Duma's population and the population of many other similar areas. Um, These people were increasingly left out of the social safety network, both because uh, maybe they weren't nationals, although everyone got what access there was to public services and healthcare and so on, but those public services were declining severely as a result of the neoliberal policies of the last decade or so in Syria. The drop in subsidies came at a moment of the global rise in food prices, if you'll recall, in 2008 that triggered riots and demonstrations and protests in a number of Arab capitals and and, and countries. And that was replicated in somewhat smaller form in 2010. These factors were all hitting this social milieu and all people, of course, but mostly urban poor and the semi-rural population and rural population, which had benefited from the pa- in the past from this, the, the, this regime's agrarian policies and the extension of credit and irrigation and massive schemes and subsidies and so on. And this is why parts of this agricultural belt or rural population didn't rebel. Parts did and parts didn't. And that, again, is something we have to look into and why Batatu, among others, comes in so forcefully. Why Raqqa was the last area to rebel. It didn't, in fact, rebel. The rebels moved in. But the Raqqa people didn't revolt. The clans didn't revolt, although they're like 98, 90% Sunni. Um, the, so the, 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 the regime policies, regional uh, factors and developments, the, the sort of drought in eastern Syria versus the concentration of capital and new types of consumer capitalism in the cities of Syria, um, the openness to consumer goods from the West, uh, the way in which Syria was linking into regional transit trade, um, 30% of Turkish trade to the Gulf went overland through Syria, 2 million tons a year of transit trade through Lebanon into Syria and beyond. I mean, Syria was part of something much bigger. This was shifting the social balance inside Syria, where people made money from. For a while, many people made money. But then increasingly, as resources became tighter, there was more crowding by those who had good connections in the regime and security services in the Ba'ath Party and local government, crowding out people who were very much like them in the provinces, in the provincial towns and capitals, in the smaller towns. So sectors of the population that could have been a beneficiary, parts of which which were beneficiaries of the regime's old policies and new policies even, were now losing out. None of that made revolution a historical inevitability. But it certainly tells us why, once it started, these sectors were ready for it and ready to move in particular ways. Now, this social milieu partly a geographical milieu, partly rural-urban, partly class, I mean, it's, it's, it's all these things, 
was also, well, certainly very heavily based in the Sunni community, and I'm not going to get into that, the sectarian aspect right now, but, but there was a definite concentration there. And this is where the response to all these factors, once it's unleashed, looked in some ways like a counter-revolution. I mean, this is where Salafism has taken root. Islamism, beards, where you get the most munaqabat, very young wives, young families, large families. I'm not associating necessarily these things all with each other, but I'm just saying to the extent that we have conservative social values reasserted, an assertion of religion, this is where that happened. In a sense, this is to my mind, my very sort of simplistic reading of history is the Vendée, in a way, in the French Revolution that, that came up four years after the start of the revolution in the provinces um, where poor peasants, not necessarily the poorest in France, but where the local region, the, the, the differences between peasants and their local landlords and the clergy and even the aristocrats were the narrowest compared to the disparities in other parts of France. So the nature of social cohesion, the perception that most of these people, while different, not all abject poor, were nonetheless somewhat closer to each other, looked out for each other, that is where the counter-revolution, one of the biggest and most important counter-revolutionary movements, or rebellions rather, happened in, in the wake of the French Revolution. Not necessarily because it was against the revolution entirely, but it was because it tried to reassert a certain set of things. And one of the triggers there, incidentally, was the issuing of the, what was called the civil constitution of the, the clergy in 1790, which made religion a state institution and took away the property of the church from the local churches and the local priests with whom, of course, local communities were very deeply integrated and could borrow from each other and help each other out. In a way, we're talking about a certain kind of dislocation and a certain kind of reaction, which is a rebellion. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily it's not revolutionary in nature at all, but again, it's part of what I'm trying to say is the social fabric we have to understand. Today's Islamist rebels in the Islamic Front, the Mujahideen Army, the Syrian Revolutionary Front, and not to mention Jabhat al-Nusra and others, say they want an Islamic state. They've got very clear ideas on gender and on segregation. They've got clear ideas. They're also not anti private property or free market at all. They're not socialists. But they don't necessarily want this particular system. And they don't necessarily want to return to the old system. Is that transformative? I'm not sure. It's radical, very likely. But, and, and, and they bring religion in as a very central uh, value and structure. Uh, it comes with patriarchy, traditional authority, but also a new kind of authority which emphasizes that everyone is an emir in a sense. This is not sort of state-centered high priests and authorities, which is so different from other kinds of Islam and why I think Salafism is so particularly interesting. To move on, I'll say a couple more things here about the social dynamic and then move to uh, my conclusion. I may have already indicated I, I, I sort of wanted to at least that, and I, here I will say that most of these trends are not um, identical in all parts of Syria. None of them are unilinear. They don't all go in one direction only. 
And this brings out a very interesting aspect of Syria, which is not entirely uncommon. I think there were elements of this in Iran, certainly during the revolution, France definitely during that revolution, and I think in all revolutions, that regionalism is important. Different regions are not all the same. I mean, we think of Syria as one country, Lebanon or France or England as one country. In fact, regions are hugely important. The way in which the Syrian regime itself conceived of its own provinces, even when it was in full control, way before the uprising, shows that it conceives of Syria in very different ways. Its understanding of Aleppo and Idlib, the city and the reef, the countryside, is very different than its understanding of the coast of Hamza al-Hama, of Damascus, or of Dara, or even of the, of the east of Hasaki and Deir Zor. And that reflects itself and reflected itself in their approach to economic management, what liberties or you know, sort of activities were allowed to, say, the Aleppo mercantile industrial bourgeoisie versus that of other parts of the country, um, how the security agencies managed security and monitored people was not the same, depending on whether they were from Aleppo or Damascus and other parts of the country. The importance of oil extraction in the east, for instance, and the importance of tribal and clan structures in the east and northeast were also a factor. I mentioned Raqqa earlier, for instance. In Raqqa, um, numerous clans pledged allegiance to Assad right up until about a year or two ago, Bay'a. And the same clan leaders and elders were photographed just two, two months ago or so pledging Bay'a to the local emir of the Islamic State of, of, of Iraq and the Levant of Daesh. This, this is, is, you know, again, I think very, very typical. I mean, it's again a, a new form of co-optation. Also in the Northeast, you get poor, weaker clans aligning themselves either with the revolution, rebellion, or with the regime in order to, because part of their fight actually has nothing to do with democracy or Islamic State or the regime or the Ba'ath or Arab nationalism. It's about fighting the other clan and shifting the balance of socioeconomic power and advantage between them. These dynamics are always there. Another agenda right, that, that's important that's emerged in these areas in particular, but not only, is the land issue. Part of what some people think about, talk about, fight for in Syria today, or at least among those in exile, but certainly in Syria, are people who lost their land either in the 1960s expropriation of land and think now's our chance to get back our land, fat chance, I think. But another sector is those who lost their homes and lands when the, was it the Tabqa Dam or the Assad Dam was constructed, known as the Maghmurin, the people who lost their lands and had to be relocated entirely into Kurdish areas because they lost their lands, which both slotted nicely into the regime's policy of Arabizing Kurdish areas on the one hand, but now these people too are locked into struggles either because they want to reclaim their land or they want to fight to assert and maintain land claims they gained in the Kurdish areas while many Kurds want to say, well, now you, you know, now's the time to get rid of you. But even that struggle isn't simple because is it Kurdish farmers and villagers, Falahin, who are looking to improve their position or the old Kurdish landlords who want to get back their land and not necessarily dish it out to their fellow Kurds? These struggles are also part of all this. And they vary from region to region enormously. I mean, Sueda is nothing like all of this, for instance. So the last thing I'll say on the, on the social dynamic and then, and then wrap up is that 
the where does that take us? I, I said I promised to try and lay out a few indicators of where we might go next, where Syria might go next. Um, I, I, one of the biggest influences in thinking about Syria for me was rereading Hobsbawm's Age of Revolution, uh, which, which I think tells us so much about the whole Arab Spring. And so much of the Arab Spring is, in fact, what came after the French Revolution. In other words, the reaction, the backlash, and the counter-revolution. And ironically, the Syrian Revolution is sort of happening after the backlash. It sort of more or less happened the other way around in some respect. Anyway, that's just uh, a slightly flippant remark there. But the old order, Hobsbawm argued in France, had fragmented by the time the actual revolution happened. I mean, the, it, it, it easily fragmented, um, even though it took at least a couple of years before the, the old order was really broken and the old dominant classes were overthrown. But... The, the next decade of revolutionary struggle and between the different factions, different agendas, different classes, different social and socioeconomic agendas, um, Hobsbawm argues, never fully resolved issues of the political agenda, i.e. liberty, and how to assure it, and who really wanted it and who for, or the social, uh, socioeconomic agenda. Well... I'm not sure that entirely applies to Syria, although I think those, those struggles and, and fights are going to be with us for a very long time yet. We're only at the very start of a very long process in the Arab region. But I'm reminded mostly of Iran, where in a way social upheaval that manifested itself in 78-79 so forcefully was the result of the past decade and a half of the white revolution that the Shah had unleashed which was in a way a revolution. I mean, what it did to Iran was transformative. Benign paternalism, if you like, but it nonetheless was something that really transformed in Iran. And to some extent, you might argue almost that what happened later was the counter-revolution. Well, be that as it may, what the point I really want to make here is that the state that emerged from the Iranian revolution after 1979 and after the bloodbaths and so on, say by 1982, when it was more or less resolved, you know, Abul Hassan bin Isad was thrown out and Beheshti had died and, and, and Saad al-Qutubzani and all the others. I mean, the, all these revolutionary fratricidal struggles had been waged. The state that finally emerged in a way is somewhat more like the Ba'athist state in Syria. A state that itself came out of the massive social transformation and mobility of new classes that emerged out of the colonial era of the 30s, 40s, especially, and 50s with you know, universal education, the creation of new state structures, the expansion of bureaucracies and armed forces, military academies, that brought people like Hafez al-Assad and the Alawis and the Takritis and Abdel Nasser and his generation and all the others in Algeria and Yemen and elsewhere to the military academy, then to state power. These people have ruled Syria as they ruled most of these other Arab countries since then. So the state in Syria was, in a way, a state that brought about some kind of revolutionary transformation and restructuring. It definitely destroyed the old social classes, uh, reordered society and the state. And in that sense, it's much more similar to Iran, Iran, the Republic of Iran, in a very, very simple way, if you like, very superficial way. But... My point here for Syria and Syria's revolution is that the regime doesn't, never really represented, and doesn't now represent some sort of revolutionary bourgeois urban middle class 
um, political power or, or entrepreneurial class or culture. This is not the sans-culottes or the Jacobin or the Girondists or anyone of the French Revolution. Um, so the regime is somewhere, I think, in a, in a sort of middle position between being both counter-revolutionary itself or trying to hold on to something. And this is why, unlike those military armies, revolutionary armies that were sent out from Paris to defeat the Vendée and the other provincial revolts, 60 out of 80 departments, departements in France, were in open rebellion against Paris in 1793 or so. Um, those who came and defeated them and crushed them and burned and destroyed and killed every living thing as a matter of policy, the Syrian regime is happy to do that. The difference is that the Syrian, French revolutionary armies came with a message of liberté, égalité, and a new program, a new agenda. The Syrian regime has done nothing of that in three years. It hasn't tried to reform a single thing. It hasn't rebuilt, even in the way that Saddam Hussein rebuilt state power, resupplied electricity, public services, infrastructure in Karbala or Najaf or Basra after having wiped out in the most brutal fashion the uprising of March 1991. That is another difference, even with Saddam Hussein, who understood that he wanted to reassert state power and authority, and he had to demonstrate it by providing the state. That has not happened in Syria. So... The, this is partly why the regime has managed to nonetheless retain so much of its social base because Syria was not yet maybe at a revolutionary moment had it not been for the Arab Spring. So the regime wasn't yet ready to crumble and fragment and was able to hold on and benefited, of course, from foreign support as every revolution and counter-revolution we've ever seen has, has, has benefited. Um, and, and that's why it, it, it's still there. But it's also why I think it can't win. Because it doesn't have this agenda, it doesn't have some sort of modernizing or bourgeois or revolutionary, even socialist or top-down authoritarian agenda for social, a social vision, if you want to call it. So I'll, I'll wrap up then, finish. I mean, that's part of my, my wrapping up, uh, what I wanted to say in finishing. Um, and I'll, I'll just say that, um, first, that while I've already said that the regime can't win, and I've said this in many contexts um, and for many other reasons as well, you know, it's overstretched militarily, demographically, a number of other things, but... In this key sense, it's overstretched. But on the other side, the most powerful force against the regime is the armed rebellion. Not morally the most powerful necessarily, or even politically, but physically, certainly, the armed rebellion is powerful. And despite massive flaws and weaknesses and fragmentation, and it's astonishing just how much these poorly armed, poorly trained, poorly integrated and organized rebels have managed to do against this, this army. But, to my mind, the real ceiling that, that impedes this rebellion is not whether they've got enough guns or guided anti-tank missiles or anti-aircraft missiles or not. It's that, in a certain sense, this remains a rural rebellion in its imagining of the world, in what it wants of the world. It doesn't either, like the regime, have 
an idea for Syria as a whole beyond what we've seen in the Islamic Front's agenda of an Islamic state with certain sort of assurances for social individuals and that Christians and others can practice their religion. This is not actually an agenda that would consolidate the Syrian state, rebuild it, and consolidate a new type of Syrian state, even a radically different kind of Syrian state. This rebellion, because it remains so fundamentally rural in its, in its, in its nature, I think has been unable to leap over the firewall that divides it from urban populations, middle classes, other social sectors, not just minorities of ethnic or sectarian kind in Syria. So I think this rebellion can't grow beyond a certain point. It might force itself on other people, as we saw in what I think has to be seen as a rural invasion of Homs, as the, re- the rebel commander or revolutionary commander of Homs itself called it, told me he thought of it as. I mean, this man said that what happened in Homs, and he regretted it, was an invasion by the countryside of the city that he had seen as a destructive thing and that he and others described happened in Aleppo in July 2012. This was a rural invasion in a way. Part of a historical process, if you like, but this was something very important. And that I think tells us why this rebellion has not been shared in the same way or imagined in the same way by others in Syria and is a a deep and maybe fatal weakness. So it can survive equally like the regime, but I don't think it can win And therefore, finally, I'll I'll wrap up with one idea. I'll throw it out. I won't explain it further. Just to say, I've signaled this several times so far, that just as the free officers in Egypt or the Ba'ath in Syria and Iraq or what emerged in Algeria, Sudan, Libya, and elsewhere in the 50s, 60s, early 70s, well, by the 70s, was the political manifestation of sweeping but slow and imperceptible at times social transformations of the previous several decades, which we then saw in the form of republicanism and military coup d'etat, land reform, expropriation and so on, and third worldism, alignment with the socialist bloc, etc. I think that what we see in the Arab Spring, this is something I want to work on separately, in Syria, in the Arab Spring, and in the rise of Salafism as a response, as the beginnings were starting to see the political consequences, the political manifestation of the deep, massive social transformation of the past 40 years, i.e. the post-1973 era, the era of the oil revolution, and all it brought in the form of massive urbanization, infrastructure development, massive state expansion, massive migration, both of labor and of capital, and everything else that it's brought with it, on top of which we've had the last two or three decades of liberalization and increasingly predatory and crony privatization. These things we've treated as sort of problematic in a very simple way, as statistics, as poverty, marginality, with the usual World Bank sort of mandate responses. I think what we're now seeing is the politics of this. And part of that politics is youth, which is inchoate, it's all over the place, it's wonderful, it's exciting, but it's not clear what that agenda is. Part of it is also Salafism. And I'm happy to develop that later on. But I I want us, I invite you to think of what's happening in Syria, therefore, as some sort of idea of where the Arab region is going, as the beginnings of a new political era. And I'll stop there. Thank you very much.
Right, uh, Yazid, as I hoped, hasn't disappointed. I think he's given us a, a tour de force and he's thrown out a, a series of, of incredibly provocative but also very thought-provoking insights into what's going on in Syria. Uh, we have uh, just over half an hour for questions. If you stick your hand up, uh, I will then uh, point to you and I think one of the uh, energetic young people at the top will run down and give you a microphone. If you could say who you are and then deliver a question, that'll be wonderful. If you say who you are and deliver a second speech, I shall cut you off, so be warned. Yes, you, ma'am. Yep, you. The microphone's coming. My name is Hannah Kutsi. Good evening, and thank you for your talk. I'd like to ask you, please, why have you ignored the media on the... Uh, What's happening in Syria? Okay, if you hold it played that. a very big role, actually. Okay, if we the media and why you've ignored it, so you sir, yeah, yeah, you, you. Well, you start speaking, and the well, microphone will come to you. No. I guess people uh, have to hear, you know. Yeah. Thank you. Who are you, sir? I'm uh, Professor Pilikia, Armenian, uh, and I have, of course. Uh, uh, a knowledge of the uh, Middle East. Uh, what I appreciated was the fact that you very successfully uh, displayed the absolute complexity of the region, which most Western commentators are too simplistic to understand. I mean, simply the Western mind is too simplistic to appreciate I'm have the to ask you for complexity a of these regions. Uh, that's why I think imperialism failed. That's another long story. But let me... So, so in, in, in terms of pure kind of consequential sort of results, I mean, all these said wonderful analysis and so on. But, I mean, Iraq, Syria, these were countries with wonderful infrastructures, etc. You know, everything was, you know, in the sort of built-up situation. I mean, in terms of the consequences, they are all now rabble. They are all sort of... Can I have a question, please? I'm going to so, have to push so you. What is your uh, sort of... Uh, what is your, uh, how shall we say, uh, prediction that in terms of the practicalities, what is going to happen to these countries who are totally destroyed now in terms of infrastructure in terms of people in terms of whatever excellent we've got that thanks can now can you no that's it thank you can you pass the microphone on to the gentleman in the, the sweater and that'll be the final one for this round i'll come back to you i promise thank later you. uh my name is fadi esper and my question is uh you mentioned that both the regime and the opposition cannot win in the areas like uh, in the areas they exist but today we see the regime is consolidating its power. It's besieging certain areas, isolating them. It's uh, do, uh, doing some successful tactical operations we've seen in, in Sayer and Sfera and other places. But on the other side, in the area where the opposition is, we see now a major, a major rebel infighting. It is now taking the form of you know, ISIS versus the others. <coughs> but there's hardly any unity between the people of, for example, Jamal Maruf, Rabat Suarthuria, and the Islamic Front. So... Where do you see this is going, the, the rebel infighting? All right, and finally, yes, you served the time. Is there any place for Bashar al-Assad in the future of Syria? Oh. That's it. You've got four there. Uh, can you talk about the media, the consequences of the destruction of the state? I'd rather Dina Matar spoke about the media, but... Um, I mean, I didn't speak about the media. I, um, there's a lot of things I didn't speak about, um, and I maybe would invite you to come follow up with an, you know, I mean, a specific question or 
if Toby allows you to comment, but... Um, no. No, all right. Um, it's just that I wanted particularly to emphasize... I mean, I'm, as I said, I'm thinking through things for myself, and I'd be very happy to hear from you if there's a way in which you fi- feel the media fit into the framework and help explain the sort of things I've been trying to grapple with. I guess the only thing I'd add to that, if you like, uh, is... If, 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 I don't know if this goes at all to your, 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 your purpose, but... Um, a lot has been made of social media, of course, in the Arab Spring and you know, the, the, the power of Facebook and, and, and social media of Twitter and, and all the other means and WhatsApp, which I must say I don't like at all. But um, in particular, I'm, I've, by the way, I've been impersonated on two Facebook pages by Morsi Muslim Brotherhood supporters who uh, apparently love what I say about the Egyptian army and I'm now being saying all sorts of very, very, very bizarre things. Um, So please don't visit my Facebook page. Um, But the... I mean, I think the social media is wonderfully important. Uh, Do we give it sort of... uh, privilege it as a transformative thing any more than we did the telegraph in the 19th century or the steam locomotive or, you know, steamboats? I think not. Uh, partly because every single technology we've seen, in, we've, we've, we've seen as transforming our lives completely, our social nature, our social lives, has turned out not to. I mean, from you know, the computer to every other thing you can think of. I think it's, it's, it's like the Kalashnikov in the 1960s. I mean, it was the iconic, sort of, uh, the icon of, of every revolutionary was the, you know, the, the bent magazine of the AK-47, and now it's the icon of so many, the, the social media are the icon of, of revolutionaries. But of course, the Syrian electronic army is great at hacking in and doing equal damage in identifying activists, tracing them through all sorts of means, uh, terrible what they, they've been able to do in, in, in terms of exposing people whose internet security is so, so low inside Syria. So, I mean, there, there's more, much more to be said about it. Whether that factors into this analysis as, let's say, having brought about the Syrian revolution, for instance, I don't think so. Just because it, you know, I mean, yes, the news of, I don't know, Mubarak's fall traveled instantaneously and we could watch it in real time on TV or on YouTube, but the French Revolution transformed the continent and way beyond for 50 years. And no one heard about it for the first month, probably. And no one even knew that King Louis had been beheaded for, I don't know how long it took to, you know. I mean, really? So I'm not sure what the question is, but, but I really would like to hear more because I, I, I do want to enrich what I'm looking at. And I'm, I tend to think in very particular ways, so I, I need challenges. Um, I didn't mean to spend so long on that. The... Um, Predictions. I'm not going to predict, but I um, let me. Well, I've got a sort of melancholic view, um, the uh, which doesn't have to be a negative one, just melancholic. I.e., I see a lot of. I see the the Middle East. I grew up with. Sammy grew up with, and, and many of well, a few of you at least, uh, were, were nearly as old. Um, that Middle East, most of it has disappeared already. I mean, a time when, I know, what was that, the Tunisian film, Men of Grey, which, which tells, I think, was it Men of Grey, that tells the story of three young boys, one's Christian, one's Muslim, one's Jewish, and they live together, and then the Jew uh, disappears, and you understand that his family have left after 67, and of course, Christian is no longer around, and 
That's the story of Tunisia. It's the story of Beirut. It's the story of Cairo. And it's not just the Jews, of course. It's, it's Kurds. It's, it's uh, Turkmen. It's Syriacs. It's Christians. It's Shia. It's other types of Sunnis. It's other tribes. It's other clans. This, this homogenizing trend is vicious. It's, it's, but it's not all someone's nasty agenda. It's not because there are nasty people who go around cutting people's heads off. This, I think, is very much a transformative process that's a consequence, not all intended, of these massive things that happen around us in life. And it's been going on for a very long time. I mean, I visited Baghdad for the first time in 74, and there were a few remnants of old Baghdad that my parents had told me about, because almost everyone in my family lived in Iraq in the 30s or 40s or 50s, and 60s and 70s and 80s for that matter. Um, I saw Shar al-Rashid and, and the, 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 the riverside bit and Shar al-Sadun and Batawin and Hay al-Arasat and Shar al-Sahat Haifa. I went back 15 years later and they were completely gone. Already in the mid-70s, most of old Baghdad had been leveled to the ground by Saddam in this mad modernizing orgy. He did it not because he was getting rid of Shia, for instance, these were, I believe, probably Sunni neighborhoods, that the ones I'm thinking of, he was just modernizing. Now, that dislocated people and did this and that and the other. Um, so we're, we're living that again. And what I see, and that's why I mentioned, I think it's interesting to look at Salafists, because the Salafists... To a large degree, if you look at who voted for the Nur Party in Egypt, who picks up guns in Syria, who joins the gunmen in Tripoli, northern Lebanon, who, case after case after case, there's a very heavy correlation, and I'm not saying this is causal or deterministic, between marginal underclasses. They're not all poor, poor, but they are poorer than many others. Um, or people who've moved out of formal politics, they don't deal with the state, they've moved out of the formal economy, they live from labor migration, as John Chalcraft has shown so wonderfully on, on Syrian labor, let's say, in Dara, or um, smuggling, or various activities, I mean, anywhere in Egypt. And the, the 12 million people in Egypt who live in Ashwaiyat also live in Ashwai economy, where the police turn a blind eye in return for a few guinea in their pocket, in return for people stealing mobile phones and reselling them on the corner. That was how, you know, the local underclass economy. That's a part of the story. And partly where the Salafists gain their, their, their foot soldiers or their, their, their appeal, their proselytizing, like the Pentecostals do in Mexico or Brazil. You know, it's, it's the same kind of appeal that looks for family values, that helps wives deal with abusive husbands, that... There's a whole range of issues I could go on about this. But this is social. This is social transformation. And part of this is about the growing poverty belts, the result of the last 20, 30 years of economic policies, of urbanization, the successes of the 70, the massive investment by governments in healthcare, in infrastructure, the good things that in the long term, however, moved masses of people out of rural areas so that maybe today I think Yemen is the single Arab country which still has more people, more of a, I mean, a, a, where the majority, a slight majority of the population are still rural. Every other Arab country has a majority urban population, and in many cases a massively larger number of urban people than rural people. This happened in the last 40 years. We didn't even pay attention to it. That's massive. And we just, we thought, well, there haven't been any revolutions, no more coup d'etat, the army are in the barracks, political stability, so there's no, you know, there's no issue. 
but there has been some sort of social thing happening. And this, I think, is what we now are seeing. Something has come unleashed, it's come unstuck, it's not going to stop even if the Egyptian armed forces push it back in Egypt or Bashar al-Assad does this and that. Where it goes, I'm suggesting that in Syria at least, I didn't say that the opposition couldn't win, I said this rebellion, the rural rebels, the ones with the guns, can't achieve what they want in all of Syria because after three years they still don't have mass support among this very large part of the Syrian population that may hate the regime but doesn't like them or doesn't trust them or doesn't want to join or doesn't want to join at this cost or all these other questions, including, I believe, a great many Alawis who know their cannon fodder for the regime but have no way out, including two million people who are refugees elsewhere, many of whom may be scared of the regime but have also made a different kind of choice not to live in liberated areas. A lot of the refugees in Lebanon come from areas that are liberated. And they left, and not just because they're under daily shelling, not everywhere in liberated areas is under daily shelling, or was, let's say, a year ago. So in Syria, this is a war, but whether there's a war or not, there are these massive movements of people that have been taking place all along. In Egypt, they got framed into a parliamentary election that later got dissolved. In Syria, they've taken this form. It's way from over. I can therefore predict a lot more upheaval, a lot more conservatism, if you like. I mean, I don't like the social values that are coming with this. But I don't assume that everyone with a beard, including longer beards than mine, um, nor every Salafist is an anti-democrat. I mean, I found some of the people in the Nur party in Egypt and the, I forget the name of it, the new Salafist party in Yemen, far more interesting and willing to engage in a genuine dialogue with people they disagree with politically than Muslim brothers. Not because I think Muslim brothers are terrible people, but they're a different kind of political and social animal. The Muslim Brotherhood still represent the property classes and lawyers and engineers and people who never took their salary from the state. And this is why there's um, a wonderful little article written by a PhD candidate in Cambridge, an Egyptian anthropologist called Yasmin something, I'm afraid I don't know her full name. Um, she, she works on villages uh, on a different topic, but she showed how local villagers will receive money and help and so on from the Muslim brother representatives in the village who are the local lawyer or accountant or you know, educated person. But they don't like them. They don't vote for them. They'll vote for the Salafists. Because the Salafists are like them in class terms. The local priest or the local soldier, the conscript or whatever. That's who are their, their brothers. The Muslim brothers they see as following their agenda and giving them charity. It's paternalistic. In a way like the Egyptian state and like the Egyptian armed forces. Um, one thing I'll add and, and move on there is, is about the future is that what's very worrying, and I've been thinking about this for several years since at least 2006, to give it a date, and I think now includes astonishingly Egypt, is the loss of a higher authoritative framework that everyone in any given country accepts is the arbiter. We call it a constitution maybe, a marja'iyya. Lebanon no longer has an agreed-upon interpretation of the Lebanese constitution. The Palestinians, having just developed one of the best constitutions in the region, immediately fell, fell over its interpretation, fell out over it. Um, Syria, let's see how long that takes. The Iraqi constitution, well, there is one, but do they, does everyone in Iraq accept what it means and should do? Uh, Egypt, I think, has entered this club. Look at how many times 
there's been an, either a full constitution or a partial constitution or a constitutional declaration in three years in Egypt. This is a deep problem. It not only tells us that people aren't agreed on what the state is about and politics is about and society should be about and what social order should be. This means they've lost agreement on some basic rules of engagement. And that is scary. I mean, we've seen it in Iraq and in Lebanon and in Palestine and in Syria, maybe Algeria, you could argue. They've not, they're not out of it in Tunisia or in Libya or in Yemen. Um, so, on rebel fragmentation, I think this is very much a consequence of what I tried to argue earlier about both the rural sort of rebel, I mean, the, the rural rebellion character of the, the armed part of the armed rebels and the regionalism. So, first of all, there are many different agendas, and I tried to bring that out a little bit by talking about clans, about land claims, about so on. About the fact that there's a legacy in which the regime itself, for decades, treated different regions differently and people from different regions differently. I mean, two people with the same security offense, you know, bad profile, would be treated differently if they came from Aleppo versus Damascus or somewhere else, or were Alawi versus Sunni, and not always in favor of the Alawi. So it, it really depended. Um, so the fact that the rebels have these conflicting agendas is natural. It's not purely power struggles. It's about a number of different things. But it's also something I've been predicting since roughly after Al-Qusayr, that we've entered into a period of overall military stalemate in which the regime has and has had from the start the edge, not enough to win. The regime is far too overstretched militarily. It doesn't have the manpower to win. It, you know, it couldn't follow up on Al-Qusayr with, you know, by taking the momentum forward either to clear the Hums countryside or to lift the siege on Aleppo, or to do a number of things. It's had to do little things here and there every few months. And when it does something in one area, it can't fight in another area. It is unable to resolve this, partly because of what I said earlier. It has no plan to tell itself, tell people, we are the Syrian state, as Bashar keeps, you know, loves to say, I am the president of Syria. I'm not just you know, the head of the Ba'ath Party. They have failed to convince Syrians of this, they have failed to do even what Saddam did by rebuilding the state, even a coercive state. They have failed to win hearts and minds. There's no thinking about that. But on the other side, the rebels can't afford to live in a stalemate forever. That's the nature of revolution or of armed struggles, generally, whether it's the Palestinian one, the Vietnamese one. You either deliver victory, you need to deliver victory within a reasonable amount of time, or at least to deliver decent functioning government to the people you actually control in the areas you control. Mao Zedong understood that, you know, the Vietnamese understood that, everyone's understood that. The Syrian National Coalition Council failed miserably. They're still debating now when to announce their interim government that they decided to form in February last year after being pushed to form one in June, July of 2012. And it's being held up now because they haven't filled the last three ministerial positions. As if this is, you know, Whitehall. I mean, who provided the Islamic State understood? So they've got a system. You go and you, you'll see online they, they've set electricity charges. They don't, by the way, make you buy their electricity and charge you. What they do is they license private operators. They're intelligent. They say, why should we run this? We want to fight. We want to do this and that. So they've licensed private operators, but they've set 
public schedule for what operators can charge per ampere of resistance, of you know, impotence. That's how they operate. The Islamic administration in Manbaj does that. The Tawheed did that for a while in Aleppo until the Islamic State took over. Now, none of that has built up into a genuine region-wide administration. So, to my mind, stalemate was inevitably going to bring out all these diversities and divergences within the opposition camp between urban and rural and this village and that village. And again, I'll emphasize, no revolution comes to every village just like no civil war comes to every village. I mean, we think of civil wars as, you know, two sides, like revolutions. Stathis Kalivas has written this dense but really insightful book on the logic of violence in civil wars. And it's the same for revolutions. No two villages necessarily will behave the same way in either. They may both be, I don't know, orthodox, Greek-speaking, agrarian in the Peloponnese, and one butchers each other, and the other stays at peace throughout the whole civil war in, in 40s Greece. In Syria today, even, there are still villages, and there were for a very long time, where they were all maybe Sunni or whatever, and it didn't determine that they were all going to become rebel or anti-rebel. Because that's not how these things unfold. The micro-level and micro-feuds and agendas and histories and legacies are vastly important. But when we come back to the aggregate, the aggregate is that in a stalemate, the regime's agenda is clear and simple. Survival. That's relatively straightforward and simple. You don't have to do much imagining to do that. And you can be pretty, pretty brutal to do that. Revolutions, rebellions, oppositions are trying to do something new. And they have to succeed either with total victory or at least doing that new thing where they are. This opposition, rebellion, revolution has not done so. So the divisions and the fragmentation and the fighting, I think, were inevitable. How far they'll go, I don't know. Certainly the regime will start to exploit that, and I'm sure was waiting for that. I, I expected that it would. Right now, I mean, there are reports that it's trying to act and move around eastern Aleppo. I'm not sure that's going to build up into a real campaign, but certainly that's what I would expect. So the regime won't win, but the rebels can fall apart and, and lose in that sense. So Bashar, <laughs> yani, it's like you and whose army are going to move him out? I mean, uh, I keep thinking of Norman Schwarzkopf in Safwan in that tent dictating to the Iraqi generals the terms of surrender in March 1980. It was March, wasn't it? 1991. You know, where I mean... Sometimes I, I, I listen to Western leaders and the Friends of Syria and Syrian National Coalition talking about Bashar must leave as a precondition. And I, yeah, I'd like that. But who's going to make him? He's not going to win. But it's just not obvious that he needs to give any real concessions. There is a huge problem, of course. This is a regime that is not only unwilling to reform itself or give concessions. I don't think it can not just because of the bloodshed. I don't think it could have conceded any part of its control structure even before all the bloodshed. Because the moment it started to unwind its system, it would have fallen apart. Not because it was such a wonderfully tightly knit, highly organized, and 
technically expert system, let's say like Saddam Hussein's totalitarianism in Iraq, which was far more tightly knit and organized, where he actually wanted performance and discipline and he punished people for failing to deliver of his own, you know, his own apparatchiks. No, because Syria is such a mishmash, such a coalition of, you know, you do your little thing, you do your thing, everyone gets a cut from the highest general to the lowest lieutenant, everyone sold something in the Syrian army, they're still selling weapons and food supplies of their own troops to the other side in the Syrian army. The same Syrian army, though, that has learned how to fight. So it's because in a system like that, ironically, it's sort of the reverse, that you couldn't dismantle it partially, not because it was so tight that it would fall apart, but because it was so balanced between all these diverse interests and balances. And after 10 years of the shift I described earlier in privatization, liberalization, and so on, I think that had it started to reform in 2011, maybe differently in 2008 or 10 even, but by 2011, I don't think it could have reformed without unleashing things that it just could no longer try to keep in check. But for now, and until you know, the US and other friends of Syria care to put their boots where their mouths are, um, Bashar is staying. Well, we have to be out of this uh, room in five minutes, but I'll risk the wrath of the powers that be and push it a little bit longer than that. We'll have three or four quick questions. Uh, You, sir, right at the back. Keep your hands up in the air and keep in mind I've got very bad eyesight. Yeah. Brahim Raskalai, you work for JP Morgan. I would like to come back to the role of Syria as a proxy war. You you mentioned very briefly, but how important uh, is the issue of resolving the regional issue between Iran, Saudi, and the regional allies uh, going along with the social fabric of Syria? We've got that. Thanks. Um, Yes, you, sir, here. Thank you. Paul Raymond, I'm a reporter. Um, You've spoken a bit about land claims. I'm just wondering if you think there's a sectarian agenda to land claims. When you look at the clearing of the Homs countryside, um, scorched earth policies in majority Shia uh, Sunni areas in northern Idlib, uh, the regime, rumors the regime is burning down land registries, um, the housing of Shia from Iraq and Lebanon in buildings owned by absent Sunnis, a new identity card system being announced while millions of Sunnis are living outside the border. And uh, I've mentioned land registries burning down. Do you think the, the regime is running a bigger system of sectarian cleansing? Got it. You, ma'am? Yep. And then there's one more question over here. Hi. Oh, uh, sorry. Is it working? Yeah. Oh, um, sorry, I'm Susanna Temko. Uh, I, uh, I was, my question is more, uh, a bit more general, just regarding power networks and sort of what is to be done. Um, there's a lot been said about sort of the new power networks. How it's very much less top-down, and with all the various factions and diverse interests in Syria, how it's very difficult to kind of articulate any one goal. As you said, sort of like the the uh, the, the rebels, the the national coalition haven't articulated such a profound uh, 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 constitution, as it were. Um, is it, is there any sort of what what can be done in terms of undoing? a stalemate if there's sort of this inability to engage properly so what, what would the next step be if, if there's no, if the rules of engagement have been... We've got it I think, off. thanks. Sorry. Yeah. And did you have your hand up? No? Yeah. Oh you, yeah. 
Right, one last question. Oh, you did? No, okay. Thank you for your talk. It was really interesting. Sorry, Um, I didn't hear that. Can you hear me? Thank you. Yeah, go on. Um, And this is a topic quite close to my heart because I was in Syria during the outbreak of the Civil War or Revolution uh, on my study year abroad. But um, I want to just touch again on um, foreign intervention and what role you think foreign intervention Mm. plays and um, whether you think the Western powers um, really care about Syria or whether um, the whole kind of kerfuffle about intervention um, was just kind of a re-exertion of power. That's great. Now, technically, you've got two, two minutes to answer that. We can maybe push it out to ten, but no more. Um, On the regional issue, I think that um, if the P5 plus 1 and Iran reach a uh, comprehensive agreement on the nuclear issue, that's going to help defuse and de-escalate regionally and ultimately in Syria and Lebanon at least, if not Iraq, Um, but not necessarily. it will to the extent that it eases Iranian-Saudi rivalry, I think, uh, but not more. First, because I don't think that any issue outside the nuclear file is going to be part of the deal. That's all it's going to be about. There could be knock-on effects for Syria, but it's, it's not part of some grand package, as some people think or hope. Um, second, the, um, there is a risk, if anything, that... Just as nuclear deterrence in the Cold War meant that the superpowers could fight more freely in the third world through proxy wars at the expense of the third world, precisely because they knew they were never going to go to war with each other with nuclear weapons, maybe by reassuring Saudi Arabia on Iran's nuclear ambitions and by resolving that level, the two will actually be freer to wage their feud, their rivalry, all the more actively and energetically in Iraq or in Syria or in Lebanon or in eastern province of Saudi Arabia or in Bahrain or elsewhere. So I, I'm, I'm, I hope the first thing will happen, um, but I very much fear the second. Um, there's more, I'm sure, that could be said, but on land claims and um, the clearing of Homs countryside and so on, I want to knock on the head the idea that the regime, well, first of all, is a Alawi regime. This is a regime that serves itself and uses the Alawis. The Alawis, as some of the Syrian writers I've quoted, um, may have chosen to play along, but equally they were met with an opposition that failed entirely to offer a genuine, concrete, practical political program that said, here is how we and you can negotiate a transition. It was all like, we love democracy, you just come along, we'll give you equal rights, human rights, everyone will be free, equal citizens, gender, religion. It sounds beautiful. But there was nothing to show the opposition could deliver this, and sadly it's become even more painfully obvious it can't deliver. Why should any Alawi or anyone in Syria, for that matter, who works for the state or for the army or whatever, risk his neck and his family's necks to cross over to an opposition that's unwilling to come out openly and say, we understand that transition will not take place from total regime power to zero regime power, from Assad to no Assad, or none of his cronies? I mean, on what basis? You know, again, where's Norman Schwarzkopf in this? Which army did the opposition have that it could dictate 
such a massive, complete transition with no interim steps, no interim stages. No one has gone through that anywhere in any other revolution. It's not like there's a set piece way you do it, but, but there was a problem here. Now, on, on land and ID cards, I, so, so I, I started with trying to hit on the head the idea that there's sort of an Alawi state in the making. I believe, it's, it's a hunch if you like, and certainly from talking to Syrians, including Alawis and people who have direct access inside the country, I think if Bashar were to say, you know, I'm giving up on Damascus and going to Kardaha, to Lataki, and khalas, we're going to make an Alawi state, the first people to lynch him would be the Alawis. They didn't die for him to carve out an Alawi state. I don't think he conceives himself that way. I don't think this is what he's on about. That's what he's fighting for. So this is, this is a canard. It's a fabrication. Now, here's the interesting bit. Is everything the regime does, or the many parties to whom the regime has contracted bits of its war, is this all part of nonetheless a sectarian agenda? Are lands being cleared in parts of Homs because you want to get rid of the Sunnis and bring in the Alawis? There's a lot of accusations out there and you know, lots of stories and statistics. I think in most cases, this is a side effect of a counterinsurgency logic. Go back to the very, not the very first massacre, but maybe the second most dramatic one in Hula, in the Homs area in May 2012. I very much doubt that the orders came down from Damascus to someone local saying, go butcher a few hundred Sunni civilians in, in Hula. Local commanders and local militiamen did this. And that's why, again, I go back to the micro level of wars and violence. I mean, there was a local agenda. And in many neighborhoods, in Jaramana, in you know, Hajar al-Aswad, in Dar'a versus Sueda, or even Dar'a al-Balad versus Dar'a villages, Every single case there's an agenda to do with water rights, to do with legacies, to do with market town relations and all sorts of things. And it gets reflected. Every village has its different battalion and who gets represented in the next command chain up or doesn't is all about these struggles in the rebellion. Now, so Hula was very much about a different dynamic. From the regime perspective, it makes absolute sense to connect your areas of social support where you get manpower and secure communications routes and to connect them up. And if you happen to get a rebellious village right in the path, it needs to be subdued. Now, you do it in different ways. In various areas in Syria, there's a deal struck with the local population. You set up your own militia, National Defense Force. It's not always shabiha in the narrow sense of the term but local people, in many cases, who run their own neighborhood and keep everyone out. And where they do that, the regime says, we leave you alone. It's obviously very self-interested, and it spares manpower. And they also obviously use Alawi manpower that way, that instead of trying to conscript at a very high level and meet social resistance and more desertions among Alawis, they tell them, you can stay home and be a home guard in your own village. There are all sorts of different strategies for dealing with manpower problems, resource problems, etc. These are massively important. So part of what we see that seems to be a purely sectarian thing, I think, is an outcome and a side effect. For some, of course, it's purely sectarian, yes. But I don't think that's fundamentally what the regime is about. And on the ID cards, you know, think back to a time in the 90s when Saddam Hussein suddenly, overnight, cancelled the old Iraqi dinar, I mean, I don't think he changed the value, the exchange value, but he just brought in a new paper, right? Why did he do that? 
It was because hundreds and hundreds of millions, billions maybe, were held by various traders in places like Jordan that were helping out the Iraqi regime through trade. But he just wanted to basically knock out all these people holding this cash and take back that cash. Did that have something to do with, I don't know, Sunni, Alawi, Kurdish, Arab in Iraq? It had nothing to do with it. It had to do with the regime thinking, how do we turn the tables on something and gain ID cards? Yeah, sure. You force people to either lose their ID card and their mobility and their ability to travel and other things, or they have to show up to the embassy and show that they've done their military service or come and report for it, and all the other things that come with that. And lastly, on and lastly, intervention. On intervention. Uh, the short of this is that um, I don't think intervention was ever on the cards, for good or for bad. I mean, interventions bring enormous damage, although, frankly, a, a, a sharp intervention early on might have done a lot more good in terms of breaking the regime straight away, but it wasn't going to happen later on. The interventions, of course, take many guises. Everyone who sends money to rebels in Syria is intervening. Anyone who sends money and guns to the regime is intervening. And the interventions, by the way, go all ways. I mean, if Qatar is supposed to have spent by, when was it, when Rula Khalaf and um, her, Abigail, I think, Fielding Smith, wrote a report on Qatar in summer last year. Anyway, they spent $3 billion on Syria, and the Saudis are spending billions. Now, a lot of that goes in the form, not of just of guns, but of cash. There's a huge flow of dollars into, the, into Syria. Why do you think the Syrian lira is back at 140 to the dollar? That's a very impressive exchange rate. And it's been at that for the last two months, something, give or take. Why? Well, partly, not just Iranian help, it's because everyone's pouring dollars into Syria. And money is fungible. Everyone's buying and selling something with these dollars. They don't all stay in nice, nicely in little rebel areas. They go all over the place. So the regime benefits. It's part of the overall economy. This is all interventions. But as for, you know, intervention with a capital I, humanitarian intervention, NATO intervention, all these big things, not only are they not going to happen, but yes, I, I think the, the implicit uh, point there in the question is that they were never going to happen because Syria is not important enough. I think from word go, for the Western powers, and I'm not saying they had to, I'm just saying for them, Syria was a sideshow. Side and let's leave it there. I think before I thank uh, Yazid for a, a brilliant talk, I just want to mention that uh, the Middle East Centre, in conjunction with the Centre for Human, the Study of Human Rights, uh, will be holding a, a, a lecture on Thursday, uh, the 16th of January at uh, 6.30 by Omar Nashibi on the Special Tribunal for Lebanon. But thank you very much, Yazid, for a spectacular talk.